Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the fifth session of Bird's Eye View of the Bible. Let us begin with prayer. This is a prayer from Catherine of Siena, who was a 14th century mystic. Let us pray. Merciful Lord, it does not surprise me that you forget completely the sins of those who repent. I am not surprised that you remain faithful to those who hate and revile you. The mercy which pours forth from you fills the whole world. It was by your mercy that we were created, and by your mercy that you redeemed us by sending your Son. Your mercy is the light in which sinners find you, and good people come back to you. Your mercy is everywhere, even in the depths of hell, where you offer to forgive the tortured souls. Your justice is constantly tempered with mercy, so you refuse to punish as we deserve. O oh, mad lover, it is not enough for you to take on our humanity. You had to die for us as well. Amen. Amen. Towards that prayer, you will see, because mercy comes up in our talk today. Um, but before we get to that, uh, since I know you all like tests, uh, we have the New Testament test that is now available. Mary Carol will now distribute. And, uh, please yeah. So it's the same format as the Old Testament one. You've got a a, a, a two-page, one-sheet summary, um, one or two-sentence summary of every book of the New Testament. So read that through 20 times. <laughs> and then typical texts uh, from the, 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 the uh, New Testament. Uh, typical, trying to find texts that um, are distinctive of that particular writing and not to be confused with something else. Uh, and so, you see how you do. Um, that'll be fine. And uh, you'll notice, if you look at the test, at the bottom of the first page... Uh-oh. I've given you the answers. Hand them back in. Hand them back in. Or, or keep keep the top sheet. Well, just put that just put that sheet aside. I'll I'll send you the right one on email. And uh, whoops, this is called a whoops. I like that kind of a test. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, I, I gave a test when I was teaching, and I gave a test, and I didn't realize that it was my copy. I highlighted all the answers. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and they looked, only one person looked, saw that. <laughs> <laughs> only one in the whole class saw that. And I was like, and of course, he gave me nothing but grief. But it was quite funny. I went, couldn't yeah. believe I did that. Jerry, were you going to say that you were starting to say the It, it, it got cropped. Oh, yeah, okay, it got cropped. So hopefully the one I send you will not be cropped. <laughs> Yeah, so somehow put that out of your mind. 
But you can do that, and like with the Old Testament one, uh, send me an email when you when you want the answer key. Well, now you've got the answer key. But with the Old Testament one, still, send me an email when you want the answer key. And I'll send that to you. Okay, last time we started on the life of Jesus, and we went through uh, all kinds of interesting things on the life of Jesus. Uh, we, we looked at the sense of Jesus' identity and call, and we looked at these various things, Jesus' baptism, Jesus referring to God as Abba, Jesus as God's Son, Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as Messiah. By the way, I was a bit remiss when talking about Jesus as God's Son, just what that would have meant in Jesus' day. We think, having 2,000 years of Christian history and uh, reciting the creeds, I think we naturally go to... Uh, a Trinitarian formulation, oh, this is God's Son, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, and so forth. That kind of language wouldn't have made sense in Jesus' day. So what would it mean to say that he was God's Son? Is there some framework to understand that? Well, yes, there was, uh, and, uh, and this would be the place to begin thinking about Jesus as God's Son. There's two uh, specific Old Testament background um, ideas for God's Son. First of all, uh, Israel, uh, actually in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 4, is called God's firstborn son. And later in uh, 2 Samuel... Uh, the king is called God's son. You get that uh, language repeated, for example, in Psalm 2, in an, an enthronement psalm. Uh, you, you are my son this day, I, I have begotten you. Uh, so that would be the initial understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be God's son. In some way, he's... He's like Israel, in some way he's like the king of Israel. Uh, um, And it will be very interesting to see, for example, Matthew, uh, particularly how he starts his gospel, tells the story of Jesus as though he is Israel. That is, the story of Israel mirrors the story of other way around. The story of Jesus mirrors the story of Israel. So Israel, uh, 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 Jesus, for example, goes through water. He spends 40, for him, days in the wilderness, whereas Israel's 40 years. There's even the story of Herod trying to kill all the young boys, again, mirroring what uh, Pharaoh uh, tried to do. So, yeah, so there's a way in which um, the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus um, reinforces the idea of Jesus as God's Son in that way, uh, in, in some way embodying Israel. 
Okay. So anyways, I, I wanted to make that point there. Um, so we talked about Jesus' sense of identity and call. We talked about Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God, and that being the center of his preaching, uh, the, um, the way he invited people to, in, into the kingdom. And really it was an invitation to share in Jesus' own experience of God. The radical way in which you experience uh, God as Father. We talked about a, a proper orientation to the kingdom, talked about the need for a new heart, need for a sacrificial life. We talked about the power of the kingdom in terms of Jesus' healing, Jesus' exorcisms, uh, and, we, and we noted something about the recipients of Jesus' healings tended to be people on the margins rather than people in the mainstream. Um, and then we got to, uh, to talking, okay, what ways is Jesus and his ministry at odds with the Judaism of his day? Uh, and and we, we talked about table fellowship. The people he associated with seemed to cause tension. So... Um, the, the uh, stereotypical language is tax collectors and sinners. It, it, it wasn't what he was eating, it was who he was eating with that was the issue. We talked about Sabbath actions that he did. Remember the, the healings at one time an exorcism that he did on the Sabbath. He could well have waited until the next day, but he didn't. Uh, and we, we, we saw that wasn't technically uh, breaking the law, at least he wasn't arrested for it, but it was certainly upsetting. Uh, he was pushing the boundaries uh, with that one, and for good reason. Um, and then we talked about his temple clearing uh, activity, uh, in which he, uh, I, I, I argued that it was a symbolic uh, action uh, pointing to the destruction of the temple. It wasn't just trying to clean it up. He was saying there's something fundamentally wrong here. Uh, so, what we want to get to today is Jesus' interpretation of Torah. In what way did Jesus read Torah differently from how others, uh, let's say mainstream Judaism, if we want to call it that, uh, how, how they would have read it. Um, uh, uh, Matthew records Jesus as saying, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Whatever that means. What, what does it mean to fulfill law? Um, what does it mean to fulfill the Canadian criminal code? <laughs> um, it, that, does he just mean to keep the law? Probably he means in some way to, to um, keep Torah properly according to what Torah was intended to do. Something like that. But the point is he wasn't there to get rid of Torah. He was there to see it used properly. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
in any legal system, you're going to have uh, conflicts where uh, you have two laws and it's impossible to keep both of them. And you need a way of uh, deciding priorities. How, in this situation where two laws conflict, which one is more important? For example, uh, in Judaism, you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? There's also a law that said uh, baby boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. So what happens if the boy is ha happens to be born on the Sabbath, and the eighth day is therefore a Sabbath? Okay, so you have a conflict of laws, and you need some way of um, uh, uh, setting forth the priority. Okay, and in that case, by the way, it, it was the circumcision law that took priority. You still so that kind of work was allowed on the Sabbath. Did you know that? That the blood clotting factor is on the eighth day is better than it is before that. Uh huh. That's what Dr. Torres So, a few things to note here. Um, Jesus was once asked what the most important law is, and he said this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. That would not be particularly unusual um, in, in the realm of Judaism. Uh, but that is, it, it, it certainly indicates how Jesus was seeing priorities, at least. Okay. Uh, so more to the point of uh, where he uh, is at odds with um, with mainstream Judaism would be in the area of purity and the story of the Good Samaritan he tells uh, in Luke chapter 10. So you have a fellow going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He gets robbed. He gets let left half dead by the side of the road, and lo and behold, along comes a priest, walks by, along comes a Levite, looks at him, walks by, then along comes a Samaritan who takes care of him, takes him, and takes him to an inn and uh, bandages his wounds and so forth. Um, the Samaritan is thrown in, I think, for shock value, uh, the point is not that Samaritans are better people, pe people than Jews. The point is that compassion is more important than ritual purity. So here's the problem for the priest and the Levite. They see a chap by the side of the road. They're in danger of um, becoming ritually unclean, becoming contaminated, and therefore they can't do their work in the temple. Right? So that, that, that's the danger. So, so again, you've got the, this thing here of uh, priorities, 
And uh, uh, Jesus' comment, of course, is that the uh, value of the human life is more important. Can I ask, in, 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 during the war and when people hid the Jews, knowing that it could be their own death, would that be kind of like something like this? They put their compassion, they put their life sure. on the line for... for yeah. Um, yeah, it's not ritual purity there, it's, well, you're, um, But if it is something like compassion over sensibility. It's, it, it's compassion at your own risk, yeah. mm-hmm. risk of your own life, not risk of um, um, impurity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, twice Matthew uh, cites Jesus as uh, saying, uh, um, what is it? I, I, I prefer Matthew, uh, Matthew 9, verse 13. Get your Bible right way up. He cites from Hosea. And this isn't in your notes, so just, just write this one down. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says that, uh, at least in Matthew 9, to defend his eating with tax collectors and sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He is quoting Hosea, who said that. So interestingly, this is not something new for Jesus. Jesus isn't the one who's introducing this idea. It's an idea already in the Old Testament. But notice, it's, it, it's a Torah argument. Which is more important? The sacrifices, sacrifices are Torah. Um, but it's how, where does the exercise of mercy come in the context of Torah? So Jesus is bringing that issue to, uh, to front. Um, I think that's, that's, that's what he's, he's saying when he's wanting to fulfill the law. He's wanting to fulfill through reading the law through a lens of compassion. Okay. We saw when we were uh, looking at the Old Testament how a focus on Torah had become central ever since the return from Babylon. We saw it with Ezra, for example, reading the law and um, reestablishing the uh, covenant with Jews living around Jerusalem. We didn't look at it very much, but we mentioned about the the, uh, revolt of the Maccabees in the second century. And the issue was around very distinctive Torah requirements like not eating pork and uh, circumcising uh, baby boys and so forth. And in Jesus' day, this is, this is part of the same emphasis, uh, the group known as the Pharisees, their point was to apply purity laws that strictly speaking 
um, pertained to the temple, but to apply those laws to everyday life. So we're not just going to keep Torah, we're really going to keep Torah. Okay? Uh, and this will be the point, you know, if we really keep Torah, then Messiah will come. That's, that's the point. So and they, were, they were kind of making it so that, well, if we don't do this, he's not going to come. Is that mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And, and, of course, then you can see, if somebody's coming around doing something else and encouraging people mm -hmm. to regard Torah in a different way, from the Pharisees' perspective, in a more lax way, mm -hmm. um, that's going to be quite troubling. Because it's not just that person's problem that becomes the nation's problem. Well, in the, in the Judaism, there is different levels of, like you have the Orthodox Jew and that, so would that be based on some of the interpretation of Torah? It's analogous to that. Um, there, yeah, when I speak of mainstream Judaism, it's, it's a bit of um, simplification. You, you have different bodies within Judaism at the time, and they've each got their own perspective. Um, it becomes a bit complex. It becomes a, a, actually a challenge to sort out, because actually the only body of Judaism from Jesus' day, there's only two bodies of Judaism that survive. Uh, the destruction of the temple. That is the Pharisees who become the rabbis and the other one is Christianity. They're the only ones that, that survive. The, the, uh, the, the, the Essenes don't survive. The people around the Dead Sea uh, that they discover their scrolls many years later. Um, the high priesthood doesn't survive. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Um, so, so an emphasis on mercy, an emphasis on uh, compassion. Um, an, another thing that uh, Jesus does with regard to Torah, we find this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, we find in some ways he actually intensifies the law. So to say what I just said a minute ago looked like a, 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 a laxing, uh, a, a relaxing of the law, uh, is not quite right. There's also an intensification of the law. For example, it's not just um, love your neighbor, but it's also love your enemies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, don't use oaths as a way of affirming uh, the truth of what you say. Just speak the truth always. <laughs> uh, don't retaliate. Rather than an eye for an eye, do not retaliate. Now that's going to be um, a particular poignant uh, line of instruction in Jesus' day when you've got Roman soldiers going around um, abusing people and so forth. And it's going to be a particularly poignant line of instruction in many places in the world. 
for the Christians. What do you do in Palestine right now if you're a Christian? Um, another way in which Jesus um, takes Torah is to internalize the command. Uh, so it's not just do not murder, but it's don't be angry. It's not just don't commit adultery, it's do not lust. So it, it, it's not just what you do outwardly, it's also how you um, are inwardly. Uh, that's not necessarily new, but it's certainly brought out by Jesus. I'm not going to say that there is nothing interior about um, the Old Testament. Uh, pe people love God from their heart and so forth. But, but Jesus brings that out. And then in, the criti in his criticisms of the Pharisees, uh, we find further... Uh, directions in which Jesus goes with Torah. He criticizes the Pharisees uh, for failing to discern what he calls the weightier matters of the law. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So again, it's going back to the uh, setting priorities, uh, which things are more important. Um, also in his uh, criticism of Pharisees, uh, no, before I say that, um, another example of him um, disputing with a Pharisaical perspective his disciples are asked, or is it Jesus who's asked, why don't your disciples wash their hands before eating? That was not a matter of Torah, at least not written Torah. It was a matter of the oral Torah. Remember we talked about the oral uh, Torah that got written down in the Mishnah later on? Yeah. So there is the tradition that it's, it's, it's not getting the germs off your hands. It's, it's becoming ceremonially clean uh, before you, you wash your hands. Uh, because that deals with um, impurity. And Jesus' point is that's not where impurity comes from. Impurity is not something that goes into you. Impurity comes from within. Uh, from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, malice, greed, uh, deceit, etc., etc. All these come from within. And these are what makes a person unclean, not eating with unwashed hands. He also uh, criticizes Pharisees for uh, their outward displays of piety. So again, Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, you don't do it on the street corners to be seen by people. You go into your closet, etc., uh, etc. Et well, I think we could call it in some sense, uh, Jesus finding the spirit of the law. Um, I think it comes back to what you said last week yeah. of the heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, yeah, a new heart, the proper orientation for the kingdom. Like yes. It all comes back to that. 
Yes, it does. It does. Um, so, so it's finding, uh, and, and, and the new heart orientation is one that sees primary value in other people, of course, in God and in other people. And with that perspective, we're going to uh, see law through a filter that's colored with compassion. So you can see how, how um, uh, that will affect how we go about uh, fulfilling Torah, if you want to put it that way. Right. So, it, so it's interesting that way. It's, it's, it, it's not a yes Torah or no Torah. Um, it's not simply for Jesus. Uh, don't do those laws, we'll do these laws. It, it, it's more a heart orientation and a we see the law this way. We see what's most important in the law. Compassion and justice, mercy and so forth. Yeah. Okay, any other questions on that? I, I, th I think this is getting at uh, an understanding of Jesus in his situation, is how he read Torah. Which I think is good, because using that word fulfill, I think I find that confusing. That Jesus came to fulfill the law. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. he came with a new paradigm. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. And in some ways, it may have been a... Um, a bringing about a paradigm that was there in days like Hosea. Who talked about mercy rather than sacrifice? Um, uh huh. Yeah. So, so, so some of this tension between uh, loving one's neighbor and things that go on in the temple is there in the prophets already. Uh, we saw some of that actually, where prophets were railing against what was going on in the temple. You start reading Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah, you don't get very far before you see uh, strong criticism against the temple. Okay? Okay, good. Let's move on. Um, the life of the kingdom. <clears throat> so what are some of the, th the tangible things that we could say about what it is to live within the uh, Jesus kingdom of God? And how are these challenging the uh, people of his day. Uh, a few things, I mean, <coughs> there are, are many things, but what comes out in the Gospels are uh, some things about um, wealth. Actually, Jesus says a fair bit about wealth. Um, he warns people about the dangers of wealth. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says. Um, his message was one of comfort to the poor and warning against the rich. Uh, you see that in uh, Luke's counterpart to the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are you who are poor, uh, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you um, when... Uh, people hate you and exclude you, etc. But woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. 
uh, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And that's sort of a mirroring of the Deuteronomy blessings and curses. Yeah, yeah, in some ways it is. He's picked that thread up from his own culture. Uh-huh. Uh, Jesus warns against the danger of wealth as a substitute for God. Um, he tells a story about a rich man who goes and builds bigger barns because his crops are doing so well and he feels that in doing that he is secure for his life. How's your RRSP? <laughs> <laughs> And fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is for those who lay up treasure for themselves, and is not rich toward God. So that's the interesting thing to try to tease out. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Um, and then some general principles then to live by. I think to live simply. Live a life that's not cluttered with anxiety in, in uh, particular. So Matthew chapter 6 or Luke chapter 12, uh, this same account. Um, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. You, you know, consider the birds, consider the, uh, the grass that grows. You are much uh, of greater value than these. Don't you think God will take care of you if he takes care of these? Uh, don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be anxious, be of anxious mind, for all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you, yours as well. So that would be interesting. So what does it mean to seek his kingdom? And I think some of the things we're saying here uh, help us to understand what his kingdom means. Okay? Uh, give to the poor. Uh, we um, refer to this story in uh, our Old Testament section um, about the, the chap who comes to Jesus. What I've kept all these commandments. What do I lack? What, what is it that he lacks? He lacks generosity. Right? Go and sell what you've got and give to the poor. And, and the story of, of uh, Zacchaeus is, is uh, helpful here too. Luke chapter 19. Uh, uh, what, is it, what, are the, what is the tangible evidence that Jesus points to that says, yes, this person has really um, got his heart in order. This person is a child of the kingdom. Uh, well, it's when he says, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. <laughs> so that was the tangible evidence. It wasn't just that he uh, said the prayer. <laughs> what do you think about that? How did he have enough to do that? <laughs> How did Zacchaeus have enough? Oh, I guess he was a tax collector. I think it's not a bad analogy um, to compare the tax collectors to used car salesmen. Not, not, not just uh, in fact, but the but the 
the stereotype that we have of used car salesmen as, as being people who, because you don't know the history of the car, you as the buyer, you don't know the history of the car and the actual condition, he's in a, he's in a position who to manipulate the negotiation, right? <laughs> to make promises, to make statements that aren't fully true. I, I think that's the kind of position that tax collectors were in. They could manipulate the situation to make people pay more than uh, was actually due. They, they weren't all necessarily evil. They were simply, they, they were the stereotypically evil people. Right. It's interesting that it's only Luke all, all, all my examples were from Luke. Is that because he's the only one that actually, or the primary? I think it, it becomes, uh, Luke is particularly interested in people on the margins. Uh, no, it's not the only one. It's not the only one. So the story about you can't uh, serve God and mammon will, will be from Matthew. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're right to point out that that's a particular interest in Luke. Yeah. But who was Luke speaking to primarily? We don't know. Okay. Um, and the people who say they do know, don't know. <laughs> no, I, I say that somewhat uh, facetiously, but there's been a lot of conversation about Mark writing to this community and Luke writing to this community and uh, so on. And I don't know that we've got the evidence to be sure about that. Yeah. Um, was Jesus against wealth? Uh, he, he certainly saw dangers. Um, he was supported by some wealthy people. Um, Luke, again, tells us of some wealthy women who supported him. Uh, financially. There are good, wealthy people in the Bible. We start out with Abraham, who's a wealthy person. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's not, Jesus doesn't become an ascetic, therefore. He's, he's uh, I'm not speaking against asceticism blanketly, but I, I, I don't think he's therefore calling his followers to become ascetics, to give up everything in life. He's simply saying there are real dangers with wealth. They, they really have the possibility of uh, diverting you uh, from the way of the kingdom. Yeah. In, in today's society, people cannot, there are people with just cannot see people being happy, even though they do not have a Ferrari in their garage and they do not have a double yeah. door for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you got the money, why wouldn't you buy these things? You know, they just, it, they just, it upsets them to think that people don't buy these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like people are talking. Well, you know, if I won that forty million dollars, I'm thinking, oh, exactly. You know, like, okay, a house that would be fun. It's just like. Okay, uh, so that's wealth. Um, another thing to talk about is honor. We know about honor. Um, honor is what? 
It's getting the esteem of people around you. Uh, things you do to gain people's uh, opinion of you. It, it's about public opinion. Uh, we know about this, but it was even more so the game you played in the ancient world uh, more than we do. Um, I should be careful about using the word we here. Uh, it's the game that Ray and I would play but not the rest of you. It, it, it was a man's game to, to gain honor because men were in the public square. Okay, so public opinion was important. Women, you were all in, inside. Uh, your issue was shame. Uh, uh, w women were to be sensitive to shame and not to get it. So a shameless woman was someone who was impervious to the shame she was accumulating because of what she was doing. But anyways... Is uh, this somehow related to family honor, the idea of family honor in the Middle East? Or the yeah, it would be. I didn't hear what you said. Family honor. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the things you do, uh, for example... Uh, why you give public gifts uh, it's because you want the esteem from people that's it, it's currency it's currency be, be, because people honor you that's really what you want that's success in life uh, it, when you're having a conversation in the street the way you interact in that conversation you're always thinking of a way of coming out on top. If there's a point to be debated, you have to win, right? You have to say something witty, for example. Anyways, that's, the, uh, that's what honor is about. Jesus ridicules the honor game, exposing it as antithetical to God's kingdom. So we still have modern honor culture. Yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't say it's, it's not that it's not significant here, but it's more of a traditional culture uh, issue. Uh, Middle Eastern cultures, certainly. Uh, uh, Asian cultures, yeah. This is, yeah. <laughs> Honor would be an issue in the Philippines, I would think. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. That's what honor is about. You sit in the best seat and you get people to greet you. That's not an insignificant thing. I mean, I mean, you know, after somebody teaches a class, he wants everyone to say, wow, that was great. And, and, and it's about getting, yeah, it's about getting his seed. So anyways, he, uh, Jesus says a fair bit about um, where you sit at a banquet. Um, true honor is to be found through humility. So when you go to a, a, a banquet, you don't sit in the place of honor, you sit somewhere else. And it's okay then if, if the host comes and moves you up, but then it's, you know, it's a disrespectful thing. So you, 
Uh, you don't presume, I think, would be the same. Anyway, that's a whole game that uh, Jesus is confronting, the honor game. Uh, power and authority. How uh, do Jesus' followers interact with power and authority? Uh, I said earlier that Jesus advocated a posture of nonviolent resistance. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. <coughs> Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for uh, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Um, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sue you, take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There's some very interesting reflection that's being done on these texts. What is, what is he really saying? Um, and and I, I think, for example, Turn to him the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. What, what, what's, what's happening? If you're slapped on the right cheek, what hand is he slapping with? Right hand. The left hand. The left, left hand. Right the left hand he's slapping with, isn't yeah. it? Now he when backhand you if you offer the other cheek. He, he's going to backhand you. Well, it's rude all, uh, to begin with to slap you with the left hand. That's <coughs> it's not a it's not a punch. It's an insult. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, is the left hand is you a punch? In Jewish uh, uh, context, yes, you, you um, the right hand is reserved. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it's the right hand is for food. Yeah, it's, some, it's some, something like that. The left hand was for your butt. Like, <laughs> 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 it may be, yes. You do unclean things with, 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 your, right, with your left hand. And the right hand was a respectful. But a slap with the left hand is an insult. And so what you're doing by turning the other cheek is you're saying you have not succeeded. Oh, the other one that I've heard was if you turn the other cheek, what you're saying is go ahead and hit me on this side and the only way to do it with your left hand would be the backhand. That's right. That, that's true. Which is kind of like a, a step over. It's it, it, Even to anybody yeah. watching, it would, be, it would be extreme in which case it would show <coughs> And I think that's probably how to see these other things as well. If someone wants to sue you and take your coat, you let them have their cloak as well. If a, a soldier, a Roman soldier, could force you to take bags of a mile, um, so take them two miles, you're doing something beyond what is required. And sometimes an oppressed people, the only thing they can do is make a decision. 
And when that's the decision that you make to go the second mile, you've shown that you've made a free decision. You are not in complete control of me. And I can go this second mile and actually, by doing that, actually put you in a bit of an embarrassing situation. Because they weren't allowed you make you go two miles. So you kind of showed them up by doing it. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. Uh, um, and, and, and so I think this, this kind of teaching needs to be seen within that context of a, an oppressed people. Um, how do you... How do you maintain your dignity? How do you maintain your identity um, when you're being trodden upon? And that's a question for a lot of people in the world. Uh, how, how do you practically do this rather than simply being smothered and accepting that? Are there some things you can practically do? I think that's what Jesus is doing here, is giving some practical uh, suggestions of how you can still um, be someone who has some control. You can make some decisions. Uh, and in so doing, in some cases, in so doing, you, you, you can actually bring embarrassment to the person who's bringing hardship. Yeah. Bringing more honor to yourself. Well, bringing more... Um, I suppose it's, 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 it's honor. I don't know if, if this Roman soldier esteems you for that. I think he's put in an awkward position. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, you have not succumbed. You have not accepted the level of uh, slave. Mm. You've, you've maintained your dignity. Like, yeah, in some sense. Like, it's you're, not, you're, you're not being esteemed for it, but you've not... Um, succumbed to being suppressed by that action. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, he warns his followers to be uh, to beware of the dangers of power. People, his, his disciples are arguing who's going to be greatest in the in the kingdom, mm -hmm. and he says. Um, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. So like with wealth, there's an issue with power. Uh, it's not, it's not going to be... Um, stay away from it, but it can be problematic. Oh, on the, on the, um, the previous issue about nonviolent resistance, I mean, I'm, I'm not... Um, putting these people forward as a, an examples in every way, but th uh, think about the Dukabors. Uh, what they did was they embarrassed their oppressors by undressing. Right? Uh, it's similar in kind to what Jesus is saying here. Only a small portion of them did that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Where have we got to go to the next? Uh, judgment against Israel. Okay, I don't think we need to spend uh, too much time here, but Jesus pronounced judgment against Israel, particularly for the leadership, for rejecting him. And that's all I want to say there. <laughs> Let's take a break, and we're going to come back and talk about Jesus' death. A very important part.
Okay, let's start talking about uh, Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die? Well, the first most basic reason why Jesus died is because when you attach a human body to a cross and stick a spear in its side and leave it there, that's what happens. It dies. Okay. okay, that's not quite what I meant. Then why was Jesus killed? Okay. Um, he threatened them by his way of being. We can look at this from three different perspectives. We can look at it from this uh, perspective of uh, Jews, uh, Jewish leadership in particular. Need to be careful here. Uh, from Roman perspective, because it was a Roman cross. And from Jesus' perspective, what was Jesus doing? Okay. Let's have a look at this. So it's the last week of Jesus' life. He comes to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And Jesus is arrested by the Jewish authorities. And he's tried. And as a result of, these, uh, of this trial, he is handed over to the Romans. And they ask the Romans, the uh, Pilate, to crucify him. So clearly the charges against Jesus are serious, but what exactly are they? The depiction of Jesus' trial before Jewish authorities tells us a little, but it also leads us to look deeper. Mark, for example, tells us at the beginning of the trial, the chief priests and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. Some witnesses said one thing and then others contradicted, and so they were in a bit of a muddle, not agreeing with each other, at which point uh, the, uh, the high priest asks whether he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, and Jesus answers that he was, and at this point, the whole council agrees that they should send Jesus to the Romans to be executed. Okay, just what is going on here? Because claiming to be the Messiah was not against the law. So what's going on here? What caused offense? Was that Jesus implied that he had a special relationship with God? Uh, he says, uh, you shall see the Son of Man ascending to um, the, the power on high. But, but the implication was that he had some kind of spe a special relationship with God. According to the Jewish Talmud, which admittedly comes a few hundred years later, 
but it, it has his, um, historical traditional material in it. According to the Talmud, Jesus was ex executed because he practiced sorcery and he enticed and led Israel astray. So what's going on there? Well, practicing sorcery probably refers to Jesus as a healer and exerciser. Uh, but it ascribes his power to an evil source, which is what we found in the Gospels. The charge of leading Israel astray probably goes back to Deuteronomy 13, where Moses said that... Um, you are to put to death the false prophet who tries to entice people to follow other gods. It's probably where uh, that comes from. So Jesus was, led, uh, was, in their opinion, leading people astray. That, that was the problem. Is it part of the political that it's the, it's whatever ceremony, Passover? So they've got, the Romans have brought in a whole bunch of Troops, because they want to make sure that there's no Jewish uprising, yeah. and that the, the, the Jewish leaders have created kind of a a balance with the Romans. <clears throat> we'll do sort of your work if you leave us alone. Well, and it is a that fear that, Jew, that Jesus is going to actually upset that balance, and then the Romans are going to that's right come down hard on the Jews. And so this is kind of a way of maintaining that truce balance. With You're the just Jews. ahead of me. So, yes, uh, so we talk about the Roman perspective, we'll, we'll get there. Well, I was thinking kind of Jewish perspective, too, that if we, get, we need to get rid of Jesus because he could create yes. and, and, a situation where the Romans will come down. And so the question I'm trying to answer is, why do they think they need to get rid of Jesus? What, what, um, in order to take him to Pilate, they need some kind of legal um, oh, other than the accusation. Make sure you don't stamp on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay. So from, from the Jewish leadership perspective, Jesus, it, there, there's two things that's the problem. One, he's a heretic, and two, he's popular. Mm -hmm. And it's both of those things that make him dangerous. He's leading, he, he, he's leading a populist movement that is doing all kinds of things. Uh, but it's, it's not where they see Judaism needing to go. Um, so he's upsetting the cart because of his healing on the, on the Sabbath, right? We said it wasn't illegal per se, but it was pushing boundaries. Um, he spoke about the destruction of the temple. That's not something you do in Jerusalem. Uh, of course, he criticized Jewish authorities. He, he associated with the wrong kind of people. And of course, associating with, with the wrong kind of people uh, wouldn't cause a lot of notice except you're a popular preacher. Um, and so that's been a bad example. Um, and then his whole, th this whole bit that we looked at earlier about Jesus having a special relationship with God. Uh, John brings that, this out a lot more than the other gospel writers, but it's there in the other gospels as well. 
when he says something like, my father is working and, and I am working, um, John comments, this is why the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also called God his own father, making himself equal with God. Um, so John, I think, is bringing something out there about you know, Jesus being the 13th. Uh, there are 12 disciples, and then Jesus had a special role in the, in, in, in the whole program. Uh, so Jesus causes offense, and I, I think the trial is trying to make a legal claim so that they can take Jesus to Pilate. Okay. So from the Roman perspective, what's going on? So apparently, the, the Romans had given to the Jews the authority to organize, to ad administer, to govern themselves in a whole variety of ways, but apparently not to execute uh, capital punishment. That becomes an issue when we talk about Stephen. <laughs> um, but apparently Jews were not allowed to execute uh, people. But uh, Luke tells us that the Jewish authorities, uh, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they raised three charges, that he was perverting the nation, that he taught people not to pay taxes to Caesar, and that he claimed to be the Messiah, that is, a king. And these charges now become more of an issue for a Roman audience, uh, because the Romans, of course, are interested in maintaining rule and order. There had been several revolutionary uprisings in Palestine prior to this time, which the Romans had to put down. And if Jesus and his followers represented another of these, then for the sake of peace, the simplest thing to do would be to do away with the leader. Interestingly, however, based on his questioning of Jesus, Pilate was not convinced that Jesus was a threat. <laughs> and so he tries to release him, but the authorities uh, um, get the better of Pilate, shall we say. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, and we will tell Caesar. That's, <laughs> that's the implication. Tell him mom. Yeah, that's right. Um, everyone who makes himself a king sets himself up against Caesar. So you've got this back and forth going on. <clears throat> uh, Pilate saying, I don't see a lot of danger in this person. Uh, the Jewish authorities saying, we're going to tell Caesar. And then Pilate says, okay, I'll go and do it. And then in order to get back at the Jewish authorities, he puts the plaque on the cross, the king of the Jews. <laughs> Yeah. Right, so it's, it's, it's a going back and forth, uh, trying to get the other uh, to do what you want them to do. So that, that, that seems to be, and, and yes, I, I, I think, Allison, you're right, that, that there's, a, there's a, a balance of power between uh, 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 Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. There's an understanding of how to maintain the peace. Uh, and Jesus is threatening the peace from that perspective. Okay. What's going on from Jesus' perspective? 
chose to go there. Did Jesus know he was going to die? Yes. How would Jesus have known that he was going to die? Well, I think it's very likely that he anticipated his own death. First of all, he faced opposition from very early on in Galilee. Um, Gospel writers tell us after he did this and that, Pharisees went to try to strategize how to kill Jesus in Mark chapter 3, if I'm not mistaken. So there was opposition. There was opposition from King, uh, from, from, from Herod Antipas. Uh, um, Jesus' good friend, John the Baptist, had been killed. And indeed, Jesus one part in the in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus had been mistaken as John the Baptist raised mm-hmm. from the dead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to some people at least, he looked like John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been killed. Uh, I think Jesus actually had to be pretty naive not to think that what he was doing would cost him his life. Okay. And indeed, uh, when he comes into Jerusalem and he does this temple clearing incident, in the temple, the holy place, surely he knows that he is exacerbating the situation. Right. So, so, so yes, I think I think it's highly likely that he anticipated. This was the end of his life. He was going to be killed for um, whatever he was doing. Um, so what does he do? How does, from Jesus' perspective, how does his death have any significance? Is he simply going to be a martyr for the cause? That's an interesting thing, is is that the New Testament in general does not present Jesus as a martyr, as somebody who is doing something good. It doesn't present him as a a Martin Luther King. Um, It it speaks about the significance of Jesus' death, as though him dying was part of his vocation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as part of his calling. And that's different than Martin Luther King. Yeah. Right? I thought he knew that. I don't know, I thought somehow another Bible study I've done or reading somewhere, I thought he kind of, you know, in communication with God the Father, that he kind of knew he was going to be the sacrificial way. Well, maybe from day one, so to speak. Maybe. I'm... I'm, uh, I, I suppose I'm reading this, I'm reading the Gospels very cautiously, uh, knowing that sometimes you get um, things that, the, that Jesus' followers discovered after Jesus was gone, and they've read that back into their telling of the Gospel story. Okay, so I'm trying to be cautious about that. 
But in, right? the, in the when he was praying in the garden, he says that's something that if you can take this cup from me. Yes. So he knew then. Oh, he certainly he knew then. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but you know, it wasn't a, just a revelation at that moment, or was it something? He had been living with all his life, and the reality he was coming yeah. right now. Well, that, that's what I kind of. Yeah, he, he, he just, he just kind of knew uh, how what you've got. You know, it's, I just accept anything. I think it's a, I think it's a, that, that what you just said is a really valid point because how many times do we look retrospectively about some event that we experienced or whatever, and that the So let me say a couple of things about why I think Jesus saw some significance in the, his upcoming death. Not just that he was going to die and be a martyr for the cause, but there is something significant. First thing is, he chooses when to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He chooses to go to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, the time which is symbolic of what? What's Exodus. Passover about? Passover. It's about Exodus. It's about liberation. It's also when the most Jews would be in Jerusalem. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, so it's it's a it's going to be a spectacle. Yeah. Um, so Jesus' death marks a new Exodus. That could be how how uh, Jesus was 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 thinking. That's how. Uh, we had in Isaiah, for example, was speaking about coming back from Babylon as a new exodus. Um, and we've talked about the exile not really being over yet. Uh, a second exodus is still needing to be fully accomplished. And in that context of exodus, which is part of Passover, uh, in the prophets, this second exodus is accompanied with defeat of the enemy and forgiveness of sins. So the themes that accompany the idea of uh, return from exile, defeat the enemy and for, uh, forgiveness of sin. You see that? Uh, for example, in Jeremiah, he, he talks about um, uh, receiving a new heart, uh, God forgiving sins, God writing laws on people's hearts, um, receiving the Spirit of God, God pouring out His Spirit, uh, things like that. So there's a, there's a number of things that get associated that the movement is going to pick up on. Uh, but the thing that Jesus does is he associates his own death with Passover. Mm -hmm. so there's a variety of ways that thinking can go from there. Mm -hmm. Try to read Jesus' mind is okay. uh, <laughs> a bit difficult to do, but he's done something significant by choosing the time. That's enough to say. And then, according to each of the Gospels, he has a last supper with his disciples. He has a meal 
Which would have been a Passover dinner, right? Good question. Mm. It's actually a good question. Having celebrated a Passover dinner is that they share bread and wine. Yeah. Pass it around. That's part of the ceremony of a Passover dinner. Uh, yes, it, it, but it's an interesting question because it, it, it's one of the big issues about differences between the Gospels. Each of the first three Gospels present the Last Supper as a Passover dinner. But then John's Gospel says that Jesus was killed when they were killing the Passover lambs in the temple. Which is looking backwards, surely. Of all people, John is looking backwards. Well, no, but if if if, 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 if they're doing this at the same time, so 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 John is making a point about Jesus being the Lamb of God, mm -hmm. and, and he says that oh, this happened, his crucifixion happened at the same time as lambs were being killed in the temple. But if lambs are being killed in the temple, then then they didn't have a Passover lamb the night before. You see that? You see the issue? Anyways, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> yes, um, whether it's a Passover meal or it's, it's a meal that is done in haste, but it's like a Passover meal. Like you, you, you can't do Christmas dinner on Christmas Day uh, because you know something else is going to happen on Christmas Day, so we'll do it the day before. Might be something like that. When you're a shift worker, uh, that's right. You can make all your holidays when you got day off. <laughs> it's a ritual, though, of Passover that I find interesting, which yes. is about the unleavened bread that you share and the wine that gets passed yeah. on the table. Yeah. So the, uh, here's how um, what Jesus says in Luke's Gospel. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's drawing an uh, allusion to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 31 uh, he, he speaks of the new covenant, but when he speaks of the new covenant in my blood, he's going back to Exodus 24, we'll get that this Sunday, where Moses sprinkles the people with uh, blood in making the covenant, the, uh, the uh, Sinai covenant. Uh, so this is, about, this is about covenant renewal that, that Jeremiah is uh, uh, talking about. What is the covenant, sorry? Uh, the covenant is the relationship between God and his people. And it needs to be renewed because it was broken. So hence, the, that's the language prophets use, like Jeremiah, uh, of restoration. So Jesus' comment is saying that this is a covenant that you, the Israelites, are connected to God. Mm-hmm. This is what Jeremiah was was uh, uh, talking about. Covenant, this covenant language. I don't think that's how Christians see that language. The new covenant in my blood. We don't see that as being a a covenant between Jews, basically, or my people and God. How how how, how do you think? 
Christmas. Well, I, we don't, or at least not, not from the perspective, I don't think, of the uh, Jewish connection to God. It's, uh, I mean, my understanding has always been that it, Christian, Christians look at it as being, I am the replacement, and that's what the covenant means. The covenant, new covenant in my blood means me, I'm taking over. Hmm. I'm now the connection. Jesus saying no. Yeah. But that's not the historic. It, it, it's a yes and no. Uh, I mean, I would say what, what Jesus is saying is this is what Jeremiah was talking about. It's happening here and now. So, uh, um, so the restoration of uh, God's people that Jeremiah had in view and indeed other prophets had in view, uh, this happens somehow now uh, with, with this covenant meal and of course with what's about to happen. But, but I, I mean, what you're getting to is something really, really significant. Is, is Jesus taking over something? And in what way is Jesus starting something new? And in what way is it a continuity from what has always been there? Uh, and both of those are really, really important. Uh, so I, I said... Uh, in a, a, a previous time, uh, I'm going to use the language of the Jesus movement rather than Christianity because certainly the way things begin, the Jesus movement is all Jewish. And I'll argue that they see themselves as um, Israel restored. As opposed to a new, a new thing. As opposed to a new religion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, there. Mm -hmm. So there's Jesus' time. It'd be appropriate to end the lesson there, but we're not going to. <laughs> Well, with the destruction of the temple, you don't have a place for the um, the the whole pre the, the whole priestly order, and I think the Sadducees were probably too connected with that um, to go on, and the Pharisees, I, I think they were uh, uh, they were certainly they were a lay order. Um, and they certainly had enough of a, a mass and were esteemed enough by people that their thinking about how are we to be Jewish if the temple's no longer here, their view of that was taken very seriously. So you're, you're referring to their thinking survived as opposed to necessarily literally the people. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That that stream is what survived. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So are all the reformed Judaism, Orthodox Judaism from today uh, arise out of Pharisee 
I think it's more complicated than that. I, th I think all, all Judaism today arises from that. Um, so there have been other historical issues that have created distinct groups today. But the, the literature of the Mishnah and the Talmud, these are, are Pharisee uh, rabbinic constructions. Okay, do you have the next handout? Yes. Okay. So the Jesus movement and the reframing of the Jewish tradition. That's the way I'm going to describe this. This is your last handout, by the way. I don't have a, another one for next week. So I will send you this one online in, in case you want it and for others who aren't here. Uh, but, Lost it. I better get my. You might find this a a curious name for what comes next, but um, I'll sh it will become evident why I'm calling it the reframing of the Jewish tradition. So the first thing we want to talk about is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational for the Jesus movement. Jesus' followers believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection did two things. It convinced Jesus' followers that God was at work and it vindicated Jesus for, uh, to them. It convinced them that the things that he was saying and doing were God-approved. Let's put it that way. Furthermore, these early followers of Jesus testified to a newfound joy and boldness and inspiration as a result of Jesus' resurrection, and this they explained as a new anointing with God's Holy Spirit. You find that at the beginning of the book of Acts, for example. So these two experiences, the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, are foundational for the ongoing Jesus movement, which eventually becomes called the church. Which just means gathering, right? It's a gathering, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that the word that's used for the church is not the word used for a, a club or a guild. Um, it, it, it actually stems from the Septuagint. It's, it's the gathering of Israel. Almost certainly the Jesus movement would have died 
without the resurrection. The Jesus movement itself needs some explanation. How does it keep going? What did you just say? The Jesus movement itself, the fact that it keeps going, needs an explanation. It would have died. There were a number of Messiah-like movements in the, let's say, 100 years before Jesus, and indeed some after Jesus. And typically what happened is the Romans would come, they'd arrest the leader, either send him into exile or execute him, and that was the end of the movement. You never hear of it again. So why didn't the Jesus movement stop? It needs a historical explanation. So, uh, uh, also, the Jesus movement would certainly not have spread outside of Jewish circles, and the fall of Jerusalem would certainly have killed it. That's what I got here. Well, there's two experiences. The resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, were foundational for the movement. And then Paul writes this, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then he's actually talking about people being raised. Uh, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now he's seen this as being very important. Now, before we, uh, just, just, just let me keep going. Let me say some more things about Jesus' resurrection. First of all, there's a bit of a puzzling nature about the resurrection accounts in the Gospels and in Acts. There's some similarities between the accounts. For example, no one actually witnessed Jesus rising. Uh, another thing that's in common is women are the first ones to witness Jesus. Uh, they speak of an empty tomb. There's a heavenly messenger at the tomb. These things are, are in common between the different accounts. But there's some puzzling things about the accounts as well. For example, Jesus' followers, at least at first, fail to recognize him. That's interesting. Um, was it because he no longer had the, um, like he was born in the image of like man, he was born like human man, but when, after the resurrection, did he take on more of the spiritual body? That... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we just noticed this. You know, he's, he's halfway towards Emmaus with a couple of disciples, and they don't recognize him until they... Actually, until he comes to their place. Um, another thing that's puzzling is Jesus seems to appear and disappear. Uh, so the disciples are in a locked room together and Jesus appears. Just what in the world is going on there? So there's something... Um, the Gospels are certainly affirming that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he's not a ghost. He eats fish, for example. 
So he, he has flesh and body to him, but there's something also fundamentally different about him. Um, Paul uses the analogy of uh, planting a seed and having the seed um, having the seed grow in this text, which I think you'll appreciate. If someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You fool! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body which is to be, but is a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, the seed, is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And then this is the text. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. What in the world is a spiritual body? A soma punaticon. I mean, spirit and body seem to be two different things, and yet he, keep, he talks about a spiritual body, so he's using language um, that talk about something fundamentally new. That it, that, that it's body and it's spirit. Yeah, so, uh, that's, that's a really important text. It's just, um, don't know anything else like this? But it, it was planted a natural body and it comes about as a spiritual body. Anyways, this is all to say there's something intriguing, there's something unnatural, un, uh, new about Jesus' resurrection. It's not just that they saw a spirit, it's that they saw a new kind of person. It's, it's, so it, it would be, to say it uh, carefully, it's not that Jesus was brought back from the dead. Yeah. It's that he's brought forward through death to life. It's not that Jesus was brought back from the dead. It's not that he was resuscitated. That, that's not the doctrine of resurrection. It's not a resuscitation. It's a going through death to new life. And that's where Christianity becomes novel. Even in the ancient world, there's all kinds of people who believe in existence after death, in life after death. Not everybody does. Uh, it's not the perspective in much of the Old Testament, for example. Um, it seems to be more of a sleeping time. But there are other peoples that speak of um, life after death what Christianity spoke of was bodily life after death. So Lazarus and Tabitha? And the, the, the boy, the son who was raised um, as they were carrying yeah, him out of the, out, out of the um, village. And uh, Tabitha, that's right. Um, they are brought back to life because they're going to die again. Yeah. That's right. So Jesus is different from that in the New Testament perspective. So let's let, let, let's just pause for a minute here, and I want to say something about resurrection and history, because 
of all things, this is the greatest stumbling block for people with Christianity. Um, I can believe much of what you say, I just can't buy resurrection. And indeed, within Christian circles, there's all kinds of um, talk about what resurrection means. Uh, and that's fine. I don't want to just collapse all of that. But speaking historically, something incredible happened that made these followers keep going. And not just keep going, but they had new life. They, they, they had a new energy, uh, and the movement spread. So what can we say about this? Because, I, I mean, that sounds like a great story, uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. If only people rose from the dead. I, I wish all kinds of people would rise from the dead. But we all know that doesn't happen. So what do we do about this story? I, I mean, as far as the, the, uh, the account goes, this is the first of what will happen to many people at the end of the age. So Jesus' resurrection is the first of a general resurrection at the end of the age. Um, but as far as we're concerned, it's a one-of-a-kind thing. And how, from a historical perspective, can you talk about a one-of-a-kind thing? How can you say what kind of probability it has? Because that's what historians are always doing. How likely is this to have happened? What, what is the evidence? So let me say a few things. Uh, let me say uh, right up front, you can't prove the resurrection. Historically, you can't prove the resurrection. So what can I say in its favor? Well, the one thing is the revitalization of Jesus' followers. Uh, as we saw with other messianic-type movements, they just died when the leader was uh, taken care of. Uh, but um, what we find with the Jesus movement, it flourishes, it explodes. Uh, something needs to, to have happened to explain that. I, another thing that we could say is that Jesus' followers celebrated on the first day of the week. Something is significant about the first day of the week. I, I mean, I could imagine them celebrating on the, on the Thursday, for example, when he had the Last Supper. That would have made sense. That I could imagine them celebrating on the Friday evening uh, in celebration of his death, for example. But they, they celebrated on the first day of the week, and that seems to have been, there needs to have been, to, and, and indeed that took over from keeping the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. So there's something fairly profound that is associated with the first day of the week to, for this set of Jews to say, hey, let's get together on that day, rather than the day before. So you're saying that he was raised on the Sabbath? Or not? No, no. no. Yeah. So, yeah. Easter Sunday. First day of the week. 
What, what's the, the Sabbath? Sabbath is the seventh Sabbath. day of the week. <clears throat> so that, what, what is the Sabbath? Friday night oh, to Saturday night. Oh, for the Jewish night. story, I'm thinking yeah. of the way things are now. Sorry. Uh, third thing, uh, the convention, I don't know if I've written these down here, have I? Yeah. Third thing uh, is the role of women as witnesses to the resurrection. Um, apologies in advance here, but in the ancient world, uh, the testimony of women was considered less reliable than the testimony of men. That was the bias of the time. Um, in fact, I think it was something like two to one. You need the testimony of two women to equal the testimony of one man. Um, and, and so the point is, if you were making up a story about Jesus' resurrection, it, it would be unlikely to say, and women were the first ones to see him. <laughs> and then the, 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 the fourth thing I'd say is the, the idea of resurrection actually was not a popular idea in the Greco-Roman world. It's not what you would have made up to try to interest um, non-Jewish people. Why do you want a new bodily life? I mean, body is what we're stuck with. We'd like to get away from the body. That's the general idea within, um, within Greek thought. Uh, body is what's problematic. Um, so it was be kind of a dumb idea. <laughs> so anyways, uh, this doesn't equal, oh, therefore Jesus was raised from the dead. What I'm putting these things up here for is um, to say, I don't think it's entirely unreasonable. I don't think you're sacrificing reason entirely by claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm going a bit out of my historical um, description here, but I think that's a fair thing to do. Any, anybody want to ask anything about that or comment about that? You notice that some of us, me mainly, interrupt you to ask questions. It's because if I was to wait to the end, I would have forgotten my question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm apologizing for doing it. But that's maybe why there's no questions now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, we can do a little bit more. So what is the task of New Testament writers? So you can imagine, imagine yourselves as, as Jesus' followers. Uh, Jesus has appeared to you as risen, and you are convinced that God raised him from the dead, and he was with you for a while, and then he's gone again, and he hasn't appeared again for a while. What are some of the fundamental things that you have to deal with? Question number one, what do we do? Does the movement continue, or do we all go back to our jobs? You all say the movement continues. Mm -hmm. now, that's point number one. Let's, uh, okay, what does this movement look like? And you're all Jews. 
So when you ask, what does this movement look like? You're asking, how does this movement differ from the Judaism that we were brought up in? So point number one, do we worship a different God? No. Point number two, do we read different scriptures? No. No. Okay. So when we're talking about Christianity and Judaism being two different things, wait a minute. When we come back at the beginning, Christianity is a movement within Judaism. Same God, same scriptures. And I say that, I, I, I emphasize that, because these very things are going to be challenged within 100, 150 years within the Christian movement. So you get to the second century and you get people saying, um, in, in, the, in the Christian Gnostic tradition, that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of Jesus Christ. And you get people like Marcion saying, <clears throat> we need to do away with the Old Testament. We, we just need the New Testament. So it's not uh, ins insignificant what I'm saying here. Um, I need to go ahead. Fundamental question. So will, will the movement continue? Yes. How does the Jesus movement relate to Judaism? What is it that the death of Jesus... Um, well, how, how, how does it relate to the story of Israel? So, questions of identity. Who are we? What is our identity and purpose? How are we supposed to behave? What, what is it that we hope for? These are questions of the Jesus movement relating to Judaism. How is it that the death of Jesus did not spell the end of the Jesus movement? How are we to understand the death of Jesus? Because to just about everyone, the fact that Jesus was crucified should be the end of the story. Um, it's, it's evidence... It's definitive evidence to most Jews that he was not Messiah. That's not what Messiah does. He come, Messiah comes to defeat the enemy, not to be defeated by the enemy. So he's clearly not Messiah. And to anybody who's not a Jew, I mean, anybody who's executed on a Roman cross is clearly the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So how is this Jesus movement going to talk about the death of Jesus? How do you make sense out of it? Particularly if you think he is Messiah, what in the world is God up to? How did God let this happen? That's the kind of question that, um, that we as Jesus followers are, uh, we're, we're going to have to answer. Okay. How do non-Jews join the Jesus movement? So this is going to be something that comes a bit later, but this is what's going to happen. Uh, non-Jews are going to want to join the Jesus movement. You already had non-Jews 
within Judaism. They were in, in the synagogues. You had the non-Jews, uh, Gentiles associated with synagogues. Uh, some of them are now going to respond to uh, the gospel message and want to join what will be the church. On what basis do they join? Uh, that's going to be a significant question. The, the, the kind of question will be is, do they need to become Jews first before they become followers of Jesus? Okay. Do they need to become Jews first in order to become followers of Jesus? What are the expectations for non-Jews with regard to Jewish sensitivities and Torah? Do Gentile followers of Jesus, are they expected to take on Torah? Okay. That would be an important question to try to work out. And how does the Jesus movement relate to the Greco-Roman culture and the Roman Empire? So more, more generally and particularly as we move out of, um, out of Israel, and as the movement spreads, you've got uh, Christians living in places that, where the culture is, is uh, dominated by uh, Greek and Roman um, <clears throat> institutions, uh, temples, uh, all, all kinds of things. Um, so how does the Jesus movement relate to that? Okay. So as uh, members of the Jesus movement are thinking about these and writing about um, various things, they're answering these kinds of questions. When you're writing a story about Jesus, which will be, which will be called a gospel, uh, these are the kinds of things that are going to be on your mind. When you're telling about the story of how uh, the Jesus movement went after Jesus up until Rome. These are the kind of uh, uh, questions that are going to be on your mind. When you're writing letters to different churches, you're going to be uh, answering questions like this, and so on and so forth. When you get to the book of Revelation, uh, very much the last question here, how does the Jesus movement relate within a Greco-Roman culture? In the Roman Empire. Okay. Any questions on that? These are the, these are the fundamental questions. Uh, and the, the kinds of questions we should have in the back of our mind as, as we're reading different books. Yeah. Oh, okay, what are we doing? Um, how does the Jesus movement relate to Judaism? That's a really important question. I'd like to have a whole other session or two to talk about each of the four Gospels and how they integrate the story of Jesus into the story of Israel in the Old Testament. It's really, really interesting how they do. I, I, I made a brief reference to uh, Matthew uh, the beginning of Matthew, but it's 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 um, woven throughout the Gospels. 
how the story of Jesus is embedded in the story of Israel. It's, it's the strategy that they, that they have to use. Because that's the question. Are you something new? How, how are you relevant to the story of Israel? Um, so the Gospel writers do that uh, quite brilliantly. They're not simply telling about what Jesus did and said. It's the way they're telling about it. Well, by making allusions to yeah. prophets. Or yes. Old Testament yes. It, it's, so it, it may be the way that they cite Old Testament texts, for example. Um, and it may be citations. It may be allusions. Um, it may be the order in which they put their material. But it, it makes us, it, it certainly makes somebody who's familiar with the Old Testament say, oh, there's a resonance here between the story of Jesus and the story of Israel. Okay. That one is really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really interesting. And, and um, it, indeed, the next thing we're going to talk about as when, when, when we come back next week is, is the Gospels. Um, but it should interest us that there are four of them and not just one. Why isn't there just one? Or why aren't there five? Uh, or indeed more. There were more, uh, but there were four. Uh, so we're going to come back next time and we're going to start to talk about the Gospels. Um, we'll talk briefly about that. We'll start to talk about Paul. And, and then uh, what I want to do uh, most of the time next time with you is to get into how the Christian thinkers were reframing, I think that's the best word, were reframing their Jewish tradition in light of Jesus. I think that's the best way of thinking about it. We'll leave that till next time. <laughs> Thanks, very. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.